0: Hello, and welcome to this special episode of It's a Fandom Thing. On this episode, I am honored to be sitting down virtually with author William Maas, who was born in Bucharest, Romania, immigrated to the U.S. as a child. He is a graduate of Harvard University and Mount Sinai School of Medicine. Following a residency in anesthesiology at Yale, he practiced medicine, and during that time, he developed a passion for writing fiction. He studied writing at Harvard, the New School, and the Writer's Studio in New York City, and is now writing full-time. His debut novel is The Bucharest Dossier. At the start of 1989 uprising in Romania, CIA analyst Bill Heflin, a delusional Romanian expat, arrives in Bucharest at the insistence of his KGB asset, codenamed Boris. As Heflin becomes embroiled in an uprising that turns into a brutal revolution, Nothing is as it seems, including the search for his childhood love, which has taken on mythical proportions. I'm really honored to be sitting down and talking to you. I have to say, uh, the twists and turns in this novel... Some of them, I was like, I wonder if it's going this way, and then it surprised me, especially the end. So I tried very hard in my questions to not give away a lot of some <laughs> of those twists, to kind of be a little bit, you know, <laughs> like yes. kind of give away little ends, but not because I think everybody should be surprised by what happens, like I was. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. So I just wanted to just start off since this is your debut novel. And it takes place in 1989, during the start of the uprising in Romania. Why did you decide to set your novel during that time?
1: First, I want to say thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. It is my debut novel in terms of it being published. It is actually my fourth novel in terms of writing. I've been writing since I was really in, in high school. It takes place during... The revolution of 1989 in Romania for several reasons one is it's a country it's my country of birth right so I was interested in that part of history uh, during those years um, while I was growing up in America and I was visiting Romania a great deal I have relatives and friends there I was there in fact a few months before the revolution and a few months afterward so I know the situation really well from firsthand experience and from my relatives and friends. And then of course, I had to do a lot of research in terms of the historical facts of the revolution. The thing with that revolution is that nobody knows exactly how it started and what happened. Even to this day, 30 years later, the Romanians are still arguing among themselves whether it was a real revolution by the people or whether it was a coup d'etat, and if it was a coup, who started it, what other outside forces were involved, and so forth. I provide one plausible theory in the book, but everything else is historically accurate. So I was trying to be very uh, good about that. Now, I describe in the book, that it is at and the author's uh, note at the end that this is a book, this is a love story inside of a spy novel, inside of a historical novel. So, all of three elements are important. The love story is at the pinnacle, and we should remember that. That is the most important part of Heflin's life, but he doesn't know that when he starts out. I wanted to tell the story of the revolution for several reasons. One is that it was the only country in December of 1989 that hadn't yet uh, unburdened itself of the shackles of communism. All the other satellite countries of the Soviet Union had already had their own velvet revolutions of one form or another. Only Romania remained. Even the Berlin Wall had fallen by then. And Romania was headed by a Stalinist tyrant named Nicolae Ceausescu, who thought himself very safe in his seat. And the reason was that he had a very stronghold on the country with his secret police, the Securitate, it was called, which supposedly had one out of 10 people in the country, either a paid agent of the secret police or an informant. So you couldn't move, you couldn't say anything without the secret police knowing about it. I wanted to display that life inside of a totalitarian government. I don't think too many people in America really know what that life is like. The poverty, the lines for food on a daily basis, uh, the uh, bribery that you needed to undergo in order to get anything done from bribing the police to let you off from speeding to bribing a doctor in order to see you, to bribing the manager of a car company in order to deliver the car in two years rather than five, or including the butcher, bribing him in order to save you a slab of beef and deliver it to your home at night rather than have to stand in line. Everything worked on that. Everything worked on corruption from the very top to the very bottom. I wanted to show what a totalitarian regime looks like. And I used the spy thriller and the love story to display that uh, in Romania of 1989. So those are some of my reasons.
0: Yeah, and it's, I mean, and I do think it is a time, I mean, someone who's speaking as someone who grew up and was raised in America, I think that is something we don't really know a lot about. and we aren't really taught about. And I mean, even like, you know, you talk a lot about in here with Kent cigarettes and how uses those to even bribe people when he gets off an airplane. So it's like every single, like you said, every single thing is met with some form of bribery where you have to have some form of currency, whether it be the cigarettes or something else to get anywhere. And of course I don't think anyone here in America can really understand that or or relate to that necessarily. So unless they've been through that. So I think it's important for people to read up on that, especially if they're not familiar with it, to actually know or at least kind of get an idea of what that would be like.
1: So, well, we think that it's far away, you know, that it happened a long time ago, but it's happening again. (laughs) Mm -hmm, Exactly. It's going to happen again in Ukraine. It's happening again in, in Russia and, um, Let's hope it doesn't happen here.
0: Yeah, yeah, knock on wood. Yeah, so I think that's why it's also good to read about this stuff so that we can keep an eye out for when it does start to happen like it is already. Well, Bill Heflin and his family, they immigrated to the U.S., and of course, Bill Heflin is not his real name, not his birth name, but they immigrated to the U.S. when he was nine after a year spent in a refugee camp in Greece. And Heflin doesn't want to be identified as Greek or even as an immigrant he goes so far as to change his name. Like he gets embarrassed when anyone recognizes a little bit of his, or he gets a little bit scared when anybody recognizes an accent at all. Do you think he does this because he is ashamed of his family and his roots? Or is he ashamed that they left Bucharest and all their friends and family behind, especially with all the events that happened afterwards?
1: No, I don't think it's shame. I think what he realizes correctly, in my opinion, is that uh, his feelings of nostalgia for his childhood, which he was forced to leave behind, are very closely related to the immigrant community in which he grows up in Massachusetts. Uh, In every community, it doesn't matter where you come from, you have the first generation huddling together, afraid to go outside of their Friends, relatives, and people who speak their own language. I mean, you have Little Italy, you have you know, Chinatown, you have Astoria in uh, Queens, where there are a lot of Greeks. That's the natural thing that uh, first generation, uh, I mean, not all of them, but a lot of them do because they're afraid, they don't know the language, they want people like them, understand them, and so forth. Now, second and third generation, of course, people leave. So, Heflin was, uh, he realized that this cocoon in which immigrants find themselves may feel good for the time being because it's safe, but it is a death trap because he needed to to leave and be part of the real world, to be a real American, and he couldn't do that by uh, staying in that cocoon. You know, a lot of immigrants build houses next door because they want their kids to have a families there so they could be in their homes all the time. He didn't want anything to do with that. He wanted to be a real American. So he changes his name to a nondescript Heflin that he finds in a magazine. And for the first time in his life, when he goes to Harvard, nobody asks him where he comes from. Nobody asks him about any languages that he speaks he is immediately treated like one of the guys which is a refreshing uh, emotion that he feels for the first time He's being accepted simply because of his name so that's why he leaves that's why he changes his uh, his name and uh, nevertheless he feels the draw from that community all the time and from his past in his childhood but he's always aware of it and he wants to keep it at bay.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he is asked to go back to Bucharest uh, by his contact, Boris. And he's very adamant and doesn't he doesn't want to go back. Like you said, it's also that nostalgia that you even describe as like a nemesis
1: <laughs> in yes. there.
0: Um, and then when Pinkus, Professor Pinkus, who had helped recruit him and uh, worked, in, was, in, was a professor at Harvard and recruited people for the CIA and other organizations. After that, after he dies, it he does end up going, even though he still seems to have a little bit of hesitation there. But do you think that was kind of like the little thing that kind of gave him the impetus to be like, okay, I definitely will be okay going back there because I want to figure out what happened or um, I want to almost not avenge his death, but just kind
1: of just do this for him. If that makes sense. Well- That is certainly part of it. What happens, and I even explain in a paragraph, is that a lot of things come together at the Mm -hmm. same time to push him toward going to Bucharest. Boris, his mole in the KGB, demands that he come there to, quote, create history. Uh, He knows that Romania is the only country left that hasn't changed from communism. Pincus is killed, supposedly, by an agent of the Romanian Securitate, And so all of these things, and of course, there's Pusha in the background, his, his love from his childhood, and all of these things point to him that he should go. And he listens because he was brought up by an old gypsy to look at signs, to look at the uh, mysterious uh, signals in life and to heed them. So he believes that life is telling him he needs to go to Bucharest, even though he's afraid of going and entering the morass of his memories and childhood again.
0: Yeah. And even like the, the cat that crosses his path yes. in the beginning, and all those, those little things. Yeah. Which was really interesting because usually when people see that they might be a little bit more like, I don't know you know, you have that weird suspicion, you know, superstition yeah. of like that's a bad thing. But he almost takes it like and puts it together with different other little signs, which was really interest. That was an interesting scene, and um, yeah, I liked that a lot. And you know, going back to that line about nostalgia being um, his longtime nemesis, and it was something he'd been trying to avoid. But the second he gets back to Bucharest, this uh, it's almost like almost immediately once he has the chance he's out there trying to find his past again to go back and he's you know he first goes to the park where he would always be with his childhood love P- pusha and then he goes back to his childhood home which sadly is in ruins and or most of that area is in ruins and all that why do you think it was that even though he was trying to avoid some of that nostalgia the second he was there he couldn't avoid it it was like impossible for him to avoid seeking it out
1: Yeah, well, it's like opening a dam. Um, He avoided going back for 20 years. He didn't want to be drawn into it. Uh, He thought Pushunep didn't love him anymore because she stopped writing when he was in the refugee camp. And he kind of mythologized her at the same time that he put her in the back of his mind. Now that he has to go back, how can he not visit his old neighborhood? How can he not find out what happened to her and see who is there, who is, that is left. And he finds out that there's nobody left other than his uh, Tanti Bobo. Tanti means aunt in Romanian, and it is something you give to a loved one even though they're not related to you. Uh, she is a gypsy that uh, brought him up in his early childhood uh, together with his mother. And um, Yes, that's when he finds out what happened to Pusha and why she stopped writing to him. And that yeah. tells him even more. Now he's got hope. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: And I won't say what what we find out because <laughs> that should be left up to the, to, the, yeah. to the reader, of course. So when he does learn the truth about why Pusha stopped writing to him when he was in the refugee camp, he becomes even more determined to find out what really happened to her. Do you do you think there's some guilt in that that's also driving it, Uh, which seems to be in some of the story anyway, like guilt that he never that once he finds out what really happened to her, that he kind of gave up on her in a way or gave up on that love that, you know, he's saying doesn't love her, doesn't love me anymore.
1: Yes, there's there's guilt there because he uh, realizes that he didn't trust her as much or their love as much as uh, he should have. Uh, He jumped to the conclusion like, you know, a lot of men do when the woman doesn't call or doesn't write. She stopped loving me. That's the first thing that comes to mind. Right. And um, so now he realizes that there were other reasons for her not writing to him. So, yes, he he is guilty for not trusting her enough. But he also is um, fearful that 20 years have gone by. And how has she changed in those 20 years? And how could they pick up the pieces from a childhood love to an adult one now, 20 years later? So he's aware that his longing for her is unrealistic, and yet he has to find her because she forms the ideal, the idealized love of his life. It's a, um, it's almost like Beatrice, uh, another novel, another writer, um, Dante. And so she has been so important in his life that he must find out who she is, what she is, and what happened to him.
0: Yeah. And he almost has her up on like a pedestal because, I mean, he hasn't seen her since he was like eight years old. So I think when you're a child and you have any kind of first love like that, of course, you're going to mythologize it as be like, you know, where she's almost not human, quote unquote. She's like this mythical being. Do you think there's any part of him that might be kind of afraid that she wouldn't live up to the image he has in his head of her?
1: Of course. And he says it at some point, even Mm -hmm. if I find her, she's not going to be Pusha anymore. My Pusha. We don't know. I don't know what she grew up to be in, in a communist country. You are corrupted in order to survive, you know. And after 20 years of a communist uh, regime or more, now Pusha, who knows what has become of her and what kind of person he's turned out to be. And so he is well aware of that and he gets him even more depressed because um, no matter whether he finds her or not, he doesn't think he's going to find his Pusha.
0: And she might not even remember him, too, could be the other big fear or not have any kind of feeling for him or be like, that wasn't anything to me, (laughs) which would be the worst, (laughs) worst possible probably scenario for his heart, at least to take. Well,
1: let me add something to that, because I think his having left is different from somebody who stayed in one place for his Mm -hmm. whole childhood. When he leaves, that part of his life ends abruptly, like a like a curtain has come down it's almost in his life he treats it as bc and ad in in, in a religion where you know it's before he left and after he left and he remembers a uh, a quote that somebody gave him in which um, it says something like you know when you start looking backward at your life rather than forward it means you're getting old well by that standard he started Growing old when he was eight, when he had to leave his pusha behind, because he's been looking back ever since. Ever since then, yeah, um, he is aware that she will not be probably the person that he thinks she will be, but mm-hmm. he has to find her one way or another. I think uh, he realizes that.
0: Yeah, for his own own sake and for closure, I think on that yeah. on that, uh, yeah, and for knowing the reality of what happened. And the novel goes back and forth in time. So it's mainly, you know, between 1989 and then 1980 and even yeah. 1982. So you're kind of telling the story of when he first gets recruited and then present day. So going back and forth. And then, of course, it even goes further back in time, too, in certain scenes when he's back in Bucharest. So were there any challenges to doing that, like trying to make sure you're not, you know, that characters are in a certain place and certain time when you're writing a chapter?
1: It's, it's even more than that. That was the most challenging part of writing the book because, first of all, you have to make sure that the writer, the reader is, is following you through all of these time changes. Um, and secondly, you can't put too much at one time. The, the question with every writer is how much of that past do I, how, how big is the morsel that I'm giving at any one time? And where do I put it? You know, one of the uh, difficulties and one of the challenges of a uh, young writer, an experienced writer, is to dump it all at the beginning and just tell you the whole back story right, uh, right up front, because he thinks that, you know, the more the reader knows, the better. Well, that's totally not true. You have to give out the information slowly in little bits and pieces. Only as much as the reader needs to know at that point of the story. And uh, you can't remain in the back for too long because you lose the main plot. And you can't remain in the p- main plot too long because you lose the whole back story. So you gotta intersperse it, intertwine it in such a way that it, it makes a um, cohesive whole. So that was a big challenge.
0: Yeah, and and I think you know, speaking to that, I think sometimes writers tend to want tend to kind of dumb it down, if that makes sense, and you know, don't rely on the intelligence of the reader. And so, if the reader feels more like they're kind of an interactive participant in the story, I think that makes it more interesting. So, like with this one, especially, you're solving a mystery at the same time, and you're you're kind of solving it along with him. so it's kind of like you are playing along with Heflin and so you're kind of in his mindset, which mm-hmm. makes it better than if you had revealed some of these big twists in the very beginning. it would have been kind of like, okay, well, when will he catch up to what I know? or exactly. you know
1: Well, I'm trying to solve several mysteries at the same mm-hmm. time. There's the mystery of a revolution. How did it start and so forth. There's the mystery of the spy thriller. Why is he there? Why did Boris ask him to come? And there's the mystery of Pusha. What happened to her? So all these mysteries are intertwined. And it is challenging because the structure of the story is such that you, that you have the beginning, the, the challenge of the, of the protagonist, then you have the big middle part and then you have the climax and the resolution. The big middle part is the most challenging part in the main plot. You have to keep upping the ante of the obstacles for the protagonist. But if you have several plots, minor plots, or even equally major plots going on at the same time, you can uh, combine all of these plots together so that there is always some sort of high point in one of the three plots going on at any particular time, you don't have a lull. Even if you might have a lull in the main plot, you have a high point in the other two. So that helps a lot in keeping the, the reader um, interested in following all of these uh, three main uh, plots and mysteries.
0: Yeah, I mean because you also have the mystery of who is Boris even though, you know, you, you also that's also another little mystery that you have in there as well. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market and another love in his life is Catherine who he meets when he's at Harvard um, in 1980 and Catherine and Heflin they play an interesting game of strip chess in the in the um, story and I, in the novel and I thought it was just interesting because I think there are so many levels to that scene it's not just about like seduction and her seducing him or like his, because you get the impression this is definitely like the first time he's ever felt any feelings for any person after Pusha. And do you think, you know, since she also works spy games as it's put in there, do you think she's also kind of testing to see if he would be a good fit for that in that scene too? Cause it kind of played like that a little bit in my mind, but.
1: Yes. She's always testing him. He's testing him. As a man, he's testing him as a possible recruit for the CIA. He's testing, uh, she's testing his integrity. She sees something in him that um, is analogous to what her character is like. So she sees a kindred spirit in some way, uh, an unanchored spirit, somebody who drifts through life. And she is the daughter of a... um, of an ambassador who has lived all over the world depending on where he was posted, but mainly grew up in Paris. And she also feels unanchored. She doesn't know where home is either. And uh, she sees the same in Heflin, but she realizes she has to bring him along. She is much more um, advanced in life than, than he is. And so part of that scene is to test him part of it is to bring him along a little faster part of it is to raise his uh, self-image because he never understands why she is so interested in him he sees himself so much further below he's an immigrant and she's an ambassador's daughter right mm-hmm. so why is she interested in me so much so she wants to raise his um his self-worth, uh, so that she, so, so that he can be an equal partner to her. And so there are many things going on in that scene while we're.
0: Yeah. It's, it's a very, very, very interesting scene. Yes. Yes. I, I liked that scene a lot because there were, there was so, there were so many layers to it. It wasn't just about like, you know, their first time together or his first time with a woman, it was, was, it was about so much more than that. And so I, I really, really enjoyed that scene a lot. So I definitely wanted to talk about that one. And speaking of chess, he used to play chess uh, with his father, Heflin did, and his father always used the quote, always beware the hidden bishop. It seems to apply to a lot in the novel. I mean, that's like the perfect quote for a spy novel <laughs> is that one. And chess is the perfect game for a spy novel. But do you also think that quote applies to real life? I'm just curious.
1: Oh, absolutely. The Hidden Bishop is actually a move that my own father taught me in chess, and it was going to be the, the title of the book. But then we started talking about it, me and the publisher, and we decided on the Booker's dossier. But uh, The Hidden Bishop is a metaphor for anything that is a surprise, usually a negative surprise, but it could be positive. Uh, In your life, you think you're going along just fine, you got a raise, blah, 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 and suddenly something happens. Your relative gets sick, you get into a car accident, you lose money on Wall Street or something. And you realize that this could happen anytime, any day. The hidden bishop is the idea that you don't know. What will come after you next? And his father was preparing him, uh, well, preparing me, but um, I'm not going to talk about it, but the point is the idea is to prepare uh, the person for what is uh, what is hidden behind the corner and what will what will surprise you. So you should always be aware of it in life.
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, that that was like one of the first quotes in the book that I just like wrote down when I was taking notes because it just really stuck out to me that, yeah, yeah. Because I mean, I think a lot of people feel that way also about chess, that chess is kind of like how you play life too. Yeah. Um, I've heard a lot of people compare it when they've played chess. I've only played chess a couple of times in my life, but I know that I've heard a lot of people say that, that it is kind of like how you play life, how the game of life is. So yes, I like that quote a lot. And his father also told him a story um, of a hunter that didn't like to kill, who meets a Russian bear who's described, you know, as like the most dangerous bear and the most, you know, strongest bear out there. But the bear also doesn't want to kill. And they become friends after saving his life. So this story appears to me, and I know it comes up later in the novel as well, which I won't give away how but it appears to be a metaphor for the real life conflict that was going on and at that time. And then also real life conflicts now, I think too. Uh, So what do you think we can learn from this story?
1: Well, we are, we are the hunter and the bear, uh, the normal, the regular people who are pulled into um, battles and, and uh, you know, uh, wars that we don't want to be a part of, you know, because of our leaders and because of other forces outside uh, our control. So we are all reluctant uh, warriors. And my whole point of that was to just to show that um, the ordinary person isn't interested in in war and fighting and and, uh, conquering and getting a piece of land or, you know, saving one's you know country's honor and all of that stuff when it requires you know killing and thousands of lives we want to just go about our lives and, and peacefully so that was the metaphor there of of uh, the reluctant you know hunter and bear neither of which wants to kill the other and who become the best of friends if only we are given the chance we could be the same
2: mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I loved that. I loved that story because it did kind of strike me as that. And I thought it was um and I and I think there was so much depth there to why the father was telling him that. And I think later on he kind of really realizes why that story was told to him. But yeah, it was it was very, very, very interesting story. And you also immigrated to the US from Bucharest as a child. So did you draw on your own? I know you spoke a little bit about that, but did you draw on your own life when writing this novel then?
1: Well, again, we need to talk about the writer. The beginning writer thinks that he can, well, first of all, you're told, write about what you know, mm-hmm. right? Which is fraught with danger because the beginning writer is gonna write a, about an event that happened in his or her life, the way it happened, uh, exactly. The uh, Writer feels a, a loyalty to the truth as it happened. And um, whenever they are criticized, they will come back with the exclamation, but that's exactly what happened, as if that is enough to make it into a good story. The truth is life doesn't give you packets of stories. Life is a chaotic avalanche of events and characters and things that you then have to put into a story if you want to bring meaning to it. So, yes, certain things happened in the book that happened in my life. I mean, there was a pusha, but the rest of it is fiction. I never saw her again. I did go to Harvard, but I was never recruited by the CIA, although even if I had been, I couldn't tell you. So. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and and so forth. You know, a lot of events that I describe in the book happened to me. Uh, There was a scene, for instance, in which a a famous actor uh, told me after I brought them Johnny Walker Black, which I bought from the uh, tourist shop because they couldn't buy it themselves, told me when he was half drunk that there are more communists in New York than there were in all of Romania. Nobody believed in communism, but nobody could say anything, including the leader. He didn't believe in communism. It was simply a ruse to have control over the population, because they all knew that all of the communist countries, including Russia, were 20 or 30 years behind in the standard of living uh, compared to the West. So they knew that communism didn't work, but the structure was in place, and it was a way of people on top to control the population. And so everybody went along to get along, so to speak. So, uh, other scenes also occurred that, you know, that I plucked out of my own life to sprinkle throughout the book in order to give it some, you know, a veracity in terms of what actually the life was like in, uh, in that period in Romania, standing in line for food and so forth. Uh, I did, you know, the, I describe a scene where the guy is standing in line to buy size 42 pants. And I say, well, not everybody here is size 42 pants. He says, you don't get it. He says, we don't care what we're standing in line for. Whatever they sell, we buy. Because then we can exchange it among ourselves. He says, this is an example of reverse evolution. We're back to the barter system. (laughs) And that's what life was like. People would just stand in line. If it's eggs, we'll buy eggs. If it's milk, we'll buy milk. And then they exchange it among themselves as to what they really need, and uh, that was a grinding, grinding daily life. And you, you went by the time you got home with tonight's meal, all you wanted to do was go to sleep.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I, and you know, like you said, I don't think a lot of us here in yeah. America can understand that. And but you also mentioned in here, you know, that there's a line about how America ignores its own failings and its own poverty and ignores people that are hungry and homeless and in the streets and kind of puts on blinders to that. So I think even when it is, even when we do have poverty or strife in our own country, we tend to not want to even look at it. And I don't know if that's a human trait or just an American trait, but we tend to not want to see that stuff when it's right there in front of our face too. Oh,
1: it's human. Uh, I've been in many countries France, you see, hobos on the street. I mean, you know, it's um, there's always a uh, a challenge to you know to see things around you that you feel you can't do anything about anyway. Mm-hmm. So, um, of course, you know, you could. I mean, if if people got together and so forth, but all of us, it's a natural reaction. We are brought up to survive in our own environment and part of surviving is you know you don't you don't see the things that are unpleasant around you and the idea that in the richest country in the world you have people living on the street is an unpleasant realization of how we how we live our lives and how we don't really want to see what's around us. But you know, we could solve it if we want to. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's also partly to fear that you could end up there, that that oh, could be you too.
1: Especially for an immigrant, you know, yeah. for an immigrant, the fear is the number one motivating factor. You know, uh, you know, when you're first generation immigrant, your father, mother always wanted wants you to go to college and make something of yourself. And it's, it's, um, it's motivated by the fear of ending up as my mother used to say in the gutter dying in the gutter alone, Uh, You know, uh, in famine. And so um, the fear of an immigrant is something that makes a lot of first generation immigrants, um, the children, excel in school, in businesses and and whatever, makes them really the hardest working uh, part of the population.
0: Oh yeah, I t- yeah, I completely completely agree. And people don't acknowledge that enough, of course. So, <laughs> but it but it is true. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and speaking of that with with Heflin in here, Heflin uh works for the CIA. He's with the CIA. Do you think part of the reason he decided to do that is to kind of as as you said kind of get kind of further himself away from That fear of being, you know, stuck in building a house next door to his family and to, you know, you know, be more into the American life. Do you think that was part of the reason he did it?
1: Well, um, his recruiter, uh, Vodin, who eventually gets him into the CIA, explains to him why he should join. You know, basically his homeless person that doesn't want to be part of the immigrant community, doesn't quite fit in the American one. And. The CIA says, we'll provide you with that home. And not only that, but you can do something to free your country of birth uh, from the tyrant Ceaușescu. And he realizes that that is appealing to him, to have a home, because he doesn't feel he has one. At the same time, he is part of America. How, How much more American can he be? rather than than being in the cia (laughs) (laughs) then he can do something to help his his country of birth but he knows he can't be a field agent he can't be a james bond he tells himself because he doesn't want to travel anymore he needs literally a home and a desk where he can uh put the puzzles together and bring down communism so that's what he does
0: Yeah, I, fi- I figured it was a lot of that. Yeah. Cause and, um, you know, going back to Pusha a little bit here, you know, because like I said, he's got her on this pedestal. Um, and I think he even does that with Catherine to an extent, uh, although Catherine is more real and realized um, because I think because he met her at, you know, when he was basically entering adulthood and, you know, starting his life. But do you think the way that he uh, you know, treats Pusha like she is above any kind of real criticism, even though he feels like she stopped loving him, do you think we tend to do that to our childhood loves? I know you said there was a Pusha for you as well. So do you think we tend as humans to kind of romanticize that?
1: Well, I think a lot of us do. It depends on the circumstance. I think it's different for Heflin because like I said, she was part of an idealized childhood also, which ended abruptly. Yeah. So because of that abrupt ending, she became even more, uh, uh, even larger than life, as did his idealized childhood. If we live with someone as we grow up and then we fall, we get a chance to fall out of love to meet someone else. It gets mushed up, you know. Here, he never got a chance to fall out of love with Pusha. She became ossified. She became a statue the minute he was torn away from her. So that is why that image has remained with him. If it was real life, we probably, uh, would not think of our loved ones as strongly as as he did because it was a it would be a gradual growing up and changing of our emotions mm-hmm. and our uh, alliances and so forth. So uh, it would be different.
0: Yeah, yeah, good good point there. Yeah, and yeah. I know you said you have like four other novels you've written. Are you writing other ones right now? Do you have anything that's in that you can talk oh, yes. about? That
1: well, I mean, uh, there is a sequel which I'm, I'm, I'm finishing. I think it's going to be called The Bucharest Legacy. It is about, um, takes place in 1993, three years after the revolution. I want to show what happened to Romania afterward. What did the revolution bring? uh, Who was behind it and what happened to them? And um, follow some of the characters from from the first one.
0: Yeah, I was wondering if if this was going to end up being a. Do you foresee it kind of being a series? Or I know it's probably too early to think
1: that way, but too early. Let's just see. I mean, <laughs> I want to get. You know how writers are. I mean, they write several novels, and then suddenly one of them gets picked up. You know, I want to see if any of the novels I've written already can be uh, can be published mm-hmm. also. So they're not related to this at all. So you know, we'll see what happens. Depends on a lot on the publishers, not me.
0: Yeah, that's that's true. That's true. <laughs> kind of out of your hands. Some of it is out of your hands. <laughs> it's
1: Absolutely. like you write
0: it and you, you you know, create this whole life and this whole thing. And then you kind of have to yeah. put it out there and see what happens. So, well, thank you so much for talking to me. I really, really enjoyed this novel. Um, and like I said, there's so many twists and turns in it that there was stuff I wanted to ask about. But I was like, that'll give everything away. <laughs> Especially the one big, huge thing um, it comes out
1: privately, <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, but I think but it's it's really well written. and like I said, there are some things you might think it's going one way and then it goes another way. But I also think it's a novel that uh, for a lot of people might show you things that you didn't know about about history um, and that you might be able to learn from or at least get a better grasp of. So I appreciated that as well. So thank you so much for joining me and speaking with me about this novel. I really, really appreciate it. And congratulations on your first novel getting published too. So that's huge.
1: (laughs) Yes, it is. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure being with you. You're welcome.
0: Of course, of course. And if you have anything that you wanted to promote too, before we close out too, if there's anywhere, or if you want to tell people where they can find you or any of your other stuff?
1: Well, uh, I have a website, uh, williammaz.com, and you can go there and find out where I'll be speaking. I'll be speaking on several venues uh, in person and also on um, podcasts and, and the Harvard clubs in Washington, D.C. and in Boston. In fact, in Washington, D.C., there's going kind of the embassy wants to uh, uh, join, the Romanian embassy uh I'll also be speaking in new york uh at the Romanian cultural institute they they want me to talk about that period in uh, in Romania so yes i'll they're all listed on that website and if anybody wants to join me that would be great thank you.
0: Wonderful. Well, and I'll make sure to put that website in the link as, in our show notes as well. So the yeah. link will be right there so I can find it easily. So thank you again very much. Thank You're you. Welcome. And this is Erin. You can follow me on Twitter at E April Beauty. The E and the A and the B are capitalized. Be sure to like the show on Facebook at facebook.com slash it's a fandom thing pod on Twitter at fandom thing pod. No, it's in that one on Instagram. It's a fandom thing pod. If you would like to be a potential interview guest on the show, feel free to reach out to us at itsafandomthingpod at gmail.com. And on our next episode, we have a very light episode ahead of you here. You may have already seen it on our live stream because we did a live stream of it, but we are going to be talking about some of our favorite performances from actors that are thought of to be just comedic and then vice versa. And then also we talk about some people that we would like to see do some more comedy or do some more dramatic work as well. So, until next time, remember, it's a fandom thing. Black Lives Matter and Stop Asian Hate.
2: It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust.